light here, guys. Oh, here we go. Wonderful. <laughs> the Apostle Paul experienced a surprising conversion. You know, the Bible is flooded with stories about surprising conversions. Um, think about Matthew the tax collector. Had a surprising conversion. One ordinary day, he was sitting there in a tax booth doing his tax work. Along came Jesus and said to him, follow me. And one of the city's most notorious sinners got up and followed him, eventually became one of Christ's twelve disciples and died for his faith in Christ. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, had a surprising conversion. When Jesus came walking by the road, he wanted to see him, but the crowd was too much, and so he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. And then eventually, Jesus came to his house and declared, today salvation has come to this house. The woman at the well who met Jesus in Samaria experienced a surprising conversion. Her life was a mess. She'd been married five times. She married five times. Currently living with a man who wasn't her husband. Jesus told her all about that and she came to embrace Christ as Messiah and was converted. The least likely of all people, probably those in Samaria thought would be converted to Christ. The thief on the cross had a surprising conversion. He was in the process of being killed for his crimes and yet simply called, sought out mercy from Jesus and Jesus promised him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and throughout the Bible, there's lots of stories of surprising conversions. Some of them maybe come to your mind. You might be thinking about the surprising conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who was converted because of a dream that he had that Daniel interpreted. Or you might be thinking of the surprising conversion of the Philippian jailer who saw Paul and Silas singing, and when the earthquake happened and they stayed there, he said, what must I do to be saved? And he and all his household were saved that day. You might be thinking of the surprising conversion of Mary Magdalene, who was inhibited into out with seven demons. Jesus cast them all out. His life was, her life was radically changed, became a faithful follower of Christ. You might be thinking of the surprising conversion of Ruth, the Moabitess from, from Moab. Israeli men came and married her, and when they died, she still came back to Israel because she found her God. Your God will be my God, is what she told to Naomi, her mother-in-law. But none of the conversions in the Bible are more surprising than that of Manasseh. I think Manasseh is the most surprising conversion in all of the Bible. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bible and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 22, deep in the Old Testament tells a story of a king, a wicked king, who comes to trust the Lord as he repents from his sin. You know, and though our focus this morning obviously is upon the this character in the Bible, such surprising conversions didn't only happen in the days of the Bible. They still happen today. Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago has a radio program. What's the name of it? Everyone say? Unshackled. I loved listening to that program as I was a kid. Listening of stories about drug dealers and alcoholics and gang members and prostitutes from abusive homes turning to Christ and seeing their lives changed. You just go to their website and click on a hundred of them. Hundreds of them are out there. Just testimonies how God has radically changed people in our day and age. And these kind of testimonies are extremely encouraging to hear, aren't they? I mean, there's something about hearing the way the Lord works in the life of someone 
to, to turn them from a wicked sinner grossly, externally, that the world would say, oh, they're, they're sinners, <clears throat> to turn and repent and follow Christ. There's a way that <clears throat> God just uses those stories in our lives. In fact, Jonathan Edwards once wrote this. He said, there is no one thing I know which God has made such a means of promoting His work among us as the news of others' conversions. You hear so-and-so is converted? Wow! You hear this person is converted? Wow! You know, And it just promotes the work of God as people are excited about it. And they're talking about the conversion of people. They're talking about what's taking place. And Jonathan Edwards says, that was one means which really propelled the work of God. In fact, that was the reason behind his treatise entitled, Narrative of Surprising Conversions in which he wrote out details about those that were converted during the days of the, sec- of the Great Awakening in his day. People he knew. He described the circumstances surrounding their conversion, what, what they were like, and, and how they became different as they embraced Christ. And such a work promoted the cause of Christ in a unique way. Well, this morning, as we look at the circumstances surrounding the conversion of Manasseh, my, my sermon this morning is very aptly titled, A Narrative of a Very surprising conversion. And my aim this morning is really to encourage your heart in hearing this story of the, of the most wicked of kings becoming a saint, of one who promoted idol worship to becoming a worshiper of the true God, of the one who was, catch this, so wicked that because of his sins, God said, I am going to punish Judah. No turning back. They are going to be punished. Yet that one was the one who repented and came to know the Lord. So my aim this morning is to encourage you. My my aim this morning is also to stir your heart. Perhaps this morning finds you feeling the weight of your sin. Maybe like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, like a big burden on your back. You just don't know what you're going to do with it and it's weighing you down. You don't know how you're living under the constant weight. You're struggling in it. But here, I want for you to know if that's your situation this morning that Christ Jesus can lift that burden from your back. He can roll it into the tomb under the hill Calvary. And it matters not how great your sin is. It can be taken away just as Manasseh's sin was taken away. My end this morning is also to encourage you in your evangelism. If Manasseh wasn't out of the reach of the grace of God, then neither are those in your social circles who desperately need a Savior. I mean, you might be thinking about someone who is currently rebelling against the Lord. And maybe you're thinking about someone who's rebelling against the Lord in great ways. Maybe they're engaged in a lifestyle of rebellion, which God has no part. They're, they're sinning in thought, word, and deed, and action, and everything about them is crying out against the Lord. Now listen, I don't care how great a sinner they are. They're not going to be greater than Manasseh. And if Manasseh found hope, there is hope for those people, for your friends. They're not beyond the reach of the Gospel of Christ. And I hope this morning, perhaps my message will stir you afresh to tell them of the Gospel of Christ. Well, let's read Second Chronicles 33, 1-20. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And, And by the way, this is just sin upon sin upon sin. 
He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then, as if things weren't bad enough, then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. And if that wasn't bad enough, thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. <clears throat> here's the turning point. Here's, here's where the, the text splits in half. The first half is told of his wickedness and now it tells of his repentance. It says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria against them and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew <clears throat> that the Lord was God. The fruit of repentance. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gehan in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the offal with it and made it very high. And then he put an army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Sadly, verse 17 reports, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he built the high places and erected the ashram and the carved images. Behold, he humbled himself. Before he humbled himself, I'm sorry. Behold, they are written in the records of the Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and Ammon his son became king in his place. Well, as I said earlier, this text has two parts to it. We see his wickedness in the first half. We see his repentance in the second half. The turning point comes in 12 and 13 when he was in distress and he humbled himself before the Lord, cried out to the Lord, and God delivered him. Really, you can think about two phases in his life. 
B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and Anu Domini, right in the year of our Lord. And such is the testimony of every Christian. There's a phase, if you're a believer in Christ today, that was B.C., that was before Christ. And there's then a phase in your life that's Anno Domini, living under His rule, under the rule of the Lord. And I just ask you, is there such a distinction in your life? Do you know that? What it was like before Christ and then after Christ? Maybe you haven't experienced that. Maybe you know nothing of that. Just know. Just know that God can save anyone. If He saved Manasseh, He can save you. If God can save Manasseh, then God can save anyone in your relational world. So don't give up on anybody with the Gospel of Christ. Well, let's look at the wickedness of Manasseh. And here I just in many ways want to overwhelm you with the darkness of his life. We see first the magnitude of Manasseh's rebellion. The magnitude of rebellion. Look at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Here we're introduced to Manasseh, who reigned over Jerusalem 55 years. That's a long time for reign. In fact, it's the longest reign of any king, Judah or Israel. He began when he was 12 years old. My son happens to be 12 years old. Stand up, SR. King Manasseh. Right there, just that age. Okay, you sit down. And uh, he lived and ruled and reigned 55 years. Now, for a time of that, he was in a dungeon in Assyria, so maybe it wasn't consecutive, probably consecutive years, but he died when he was a little younger than my father. Why don't you stand up? There's King Manasseh shortly before he died right there. It's a long time. It's a long reign of Manasseh, and he accomplished much. But sadly, it wasn't very good what he accomplished. Verse 2 tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Right, You you measure His life according to the wicked nations which they conquered and He gets a subpar grade. He did worse than the nations. Now, it's customary for Scriptures to grade their kings. In chapter 29, verse 2, we see Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, got a good grade. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In 2 Chronicles 29.11, Manasseh's grandfather was bad. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. And throughout the lineage of the kings of Judah, you get some of them are good and some of them are bad. In fact, half of them were good and half of them were bad. But Manasseh was particularly bad. And you can well argue that he was the worst of them all. In fact, Jeremiah 15, verse 4. It's a good verse to write down. Jeremiah 15, verse 4. If you write in your Bibles, write it right there next to verse 2. It says, God speaking through Jeremiah, I will make Judah an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. In other words, Manasseh's sin was so bad, it brought ultimate, irrevocable judgment upon Judah. Like Manasseh, you blew it so bad, I'm destroying Judah. Even though good things happened. Josiah came along after Manasseh, it still didn't matter. When God was dealing with Josiah, he said basically, well, I'll let you die in peace, but after you, we're going to destroy this thing. And indeed, 50 years after the reign of Manasseh, the Babylonians came and took him off to exile 
And that's why Manasseh's conversion is so surprising because his sin was the downfall of Judah. Maybe the nail in the coffin, the final thing. What did he do that made so bad? First of all, he, he rebelled against a godly example. Manasseh's father was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good and godly king. As we saw earlier in chapter 29, verse 2, he did right in the sight of the Lord. I love the fact that Hezekiah's very first priority during his reign was to restore the worship of the Lord. Second Chronicles 29, verse 3. Look at what it says. It says, In the first year of his reign, this is Hezekiah, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square in the east. He instructs them how we're going to reform this place. And uh, my father didn't do good, but me. This is the very first act that I'm going to do. Restore the worship of God. In chapter 30, we see Hezekiah reinstituting the Passover. In chapter 31, the reform continued, destroying all the idols in the land. And when you summarize Hezekiah's life, you see it in Second Chronicles chapter 21, 31, verses 20 and 21. It says, Then thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law, in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Here was a good king, and that was Manasseh's father. And yet Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord in spite of the godly example that his father left. And I believe that this makes his sin worse because he sinned against the light. See, it's one thing to sin in ignorance. It's another thing to sin against the light. I mean, if you grew up in a home knowing nothing of God, but rather being exposed to sin, an alcoholic father and an abusive mother, right? parents who fought, never going to church, never hearing of God, sin and let sin. It's one thing for you to grow up and follow that example. It's all you knew. You're still responsible for it, but it's all you knew. But it's another thing entirely to grow up in a home where God is honored in the lives of your parents, where the Bible is read, where prayers are prayed, where love abounds. And then go astray makes you worse because you've sinned against the light. Think about Jesus. When He walked the earth, His greatest condemnation was against those who had the light. He brought curses upon the Pharisees and Sadducees. He cursed Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum because of all the miracles they'd seen. And yet they still were unrepentant. But Jesus didn't curse the sinners, the tax gatherers, and the prostitutes in that way. They didn't quite have the light. He was more gracious to them. Because these Pharisees, Sadducees, and cities that had seen the miracles done sinned against great light. And Manasseh had sinned against great light as well. And I just say right here, may Rock Valley Bible Church raise up a godly generation. Well, Manasseh's rebellion was great also. Verses 3-6, through six, because it was against God's commands to Moses. I mean, see that there in verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down. He also erected the bales, altars for the bales, and made the ashram. Everything that Hezekiah tore down, Manasseh built up. And everything that Hezekiah built up, Manasseh tore down. Hezekiah had torn down the high places, places of worship, seated up on a hill or mountain. But Manasseh built them up. Hezekiah had torn down the altars of the bales, the local fertility gods. But Manasseh built him up. 
Hezekiah had torn down the ashram, the female fertility gods, but Manasseh built them up. Hezekiah had built up the house of God. Manasseh tore it down. Now, each of these things and the altars that Manasseh built were all explicitly lit, forbidden in the law of Moses. We go through and find specific commandments. Speaks against the high places. Speaks against the altars of the Baals. Speaks against the altars of the Asherim. But he didn't just stop there. He continued on. Look at verse 4. I'm sorry, not verse 4. Let's see. Here we are. No, let's keep going. Verse 3. And worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. It's probably the stars. Worshipping all the stars. Maybe spirit beings as well. I think he was worshiping like an astrologist, right? Tarot cards and, and crystal balls and seeking the alignment of the stars. This too is contrary to the law of Moses. Let's just say on the old Ginsu Nice commercial. But wait, there's more. Verse 4, He built the altars in the house of the Lord in which the Lord had said, My name should be in Jerusalem forever. You see, these altars weren't merely built in some obscure, out-of-the-way part of town. No, they were built in the very temple of God itself. But wait, there's more. Verse 5, He built altars for all those of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He's talking about the Holy of Holies and the priestly court. The Holy of Holies. That place where one man... One high priest, holy man in the land, was allowed to enter that place once a year to atone for the sins of the people. The most sacred place on all the planet. Moses puts an idol in that place. Daniel called such a thing the abomination of desolations. That's what Manasseh did long before people did it in the time of Maccabees. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Look at verse 6. He made his sons to pass through the fire of Ben-Hinnom. I'm sorry, verse... Yeah, there it is. Ben-Hinnom. It's talking about child sacrifice. He sacrificed his own children upon the altar. Stephanie, you want to stand up right there on your chair? Stand up. Stand up for everyone to see you. He sacrificed his little children on the altar. Continues, verse 6. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. It's almost as if Manasseh was on the hunt for the bad things to do. And when he found a bad thing to do, would this be a bad thing to do? He went ahead and did it. Proverbs 10.23 says, Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. Manasseh was the ultimate fool. Sporting in his wickedness. It's as if he was trying to break the rules. I mean... If your home is anything like our home, you know what rebellious children can be like at times, right? You tell them to come here and the rebellious child won't. If mom says that, dad says that, I'm not going to come. Or you tell the rebellious child, don't touch that. The rebellious child goes ahead and touches it. Or you say, please be quiet and the rebellious child will continue his or her babble, right? I mean, you guys know and what that's like. That's what Manasseh was doing with God. If God revealed it in the law of Moses, let's do the opposite. Let's just do whatever God says not to do. Let's not do whatever God says to do. Throughout the Torah, Moses spoke against the high places and the bales and the ashram and the altars and the stars of heaven. 
the child sacrifice and witchcraft and divination, sorcery, mediums and spiritists. When we have the time, we could peruse the Pentateuch and see how blatant his sin was. Just a reflection of hardness of heart. Richard Baxter said it well. He said this, A sin of infirmity may admit apology. A sin of ignorance may find out excuse. But a sin of defiance can find no defense. And that was Manasseh. No defense. He had no excuse for his wickedness. A good summary comes here in verse 6. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And again, I say, this is why Manasseh's conversion is so surprising. His sin was great. It was against the light. And God was angry with him. Well, we continue in verse 7 and 8. He sinned against God's promise to Solomon. In verse 7, it says, Then he put a carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them, according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Here was a promise that God had given to Solomon. A promise of blessing for obedience. A promise of cursing for disobedience. And as Manasseh rebelled against this promise, he received the curses. And God was true to His promise. Because of the sin of Manasseh, He was going to bring Judah to a wretched end. He sinned against a godly example. He sinned against the commandments to Moses, against the promises of Solomon. Fourthly, He sinned as a leader. Verse 9, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. See, it's one thing to do evil yourself, but it's another thing to lead people in that evil. It's one thing to be a drug user, but it's another thing to bring others along in your sin and show them how to use drugs as well. It's one thing to be a homosexual, but to seduce another into the same sin is worse. And those who lead others into sin are under greater condemnation. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, remember? He said, it would be better for him, be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's, that's better than what's going to happen to that one. But Manasseh didn't just lead one little one into sin. He led an entire nation into sin. Thus, he became under even greater condemnation. The fact that he repented was very surprising. Well, verse 10, we see a final factor in the greatness of his wickedness. It's against the godly example, against the commands of Moses, against the promise of Solomon. It was as a leader and here was, it was against constant warning. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. See, it's one thing to be outside the church and be evil. But it's another thing to be inside the church and to hear from God's Word consistently and continue in your sin. As Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. It would have been better for Judas not to have been born than having been born, walked in the inner circle with Jesus for three years and then betrayed Him for a few tokens of silver. Constant warning. Constant warning. Constant warning and missing it, missing it, missing it. Judas heard everything that Jesus preached. 
was warned so many times and yet went astray. And so it was with Manasseh. In his sin, it would have been better for him not to have been born. Now, Manasseh was a man who looked like he had no chance of being converted. If you'd have seen Manasseh at this time, you said, no way is he going to be converted. And yet, Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And this is the great illustration of Proverbs 21.1. God was gracious to Manasseh, turned the channel of his heart to seek the Lord. And would the full truth be known? It's the only way a sinner ever comes to Christ. It's not because of some spark of goodness within them that, that stirs It says, oh, I have to seek God. No, on the contrary, it's because God takes the initiative and opens the heart to believe. When the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, they were confused about the resurrection. Jesus explained to them, taught about how they were foolish not to believe all the law and the prophets and explained to them from Moses and the Psalms and the prophets how it was that Christ might suffer, must suffer and die. And, and after Jesus left them, they were still confused. Though they'd heard it all, they were confused. And how did they understand? It was only Luke 24:45 when Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures that, oh, now I understand. It's only when, when God moves. No one comes to Christ unless Christ draws them. And that's what the Lord did with Manasseh. He brought him low and turned his heart. Well, that is my second point. We've seen the magnitude of Manasseh's rebellion and now we see the account of Manasseh's repentance. And this is where the good news comes. All right? I wanted to paint it dark so that you see how dark it was for him. And maybe you can relate with that sorrow of your soul so that you can now come and realize that you can join in the light here as well because there's hope here in verses 11 through 20. It's where we see God at work. Now, verse 11 describes the terrible fate of Manasseh. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army, the king of Assyria, against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Um, here we see Manasseh being captured in war. Now, these Assyrians weren't a new army. During the days of Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, the Assyrians came against them and waged war. You can read about that in chapter 32. Sennacherib was coming up against them. But Manasseh had been captured by them. And it says here that Manasseh was captured with hooks. The NIV says they were captured, that they put a hook in his nose. That's probably what happened. There are reliefs in the British Museum displaying the capturing of enemies this way. It was customary for the Assyrians to, to, to capture people, put a hook in people's noses, and to parade them like cattle. You think about a big cow, you can just walk around with a ring in his snout, easy. And so also, here is Manasseh, hook in his nose, incredibly painful, incredibly sensitive, being walked into Assyria. And he gets taken as a prisoner into Assyria, taken into the deep dungeon there. What a blessing it was for Manasseh. Because there in the Assyrian prison was where Manasseh came to an end of himself. He was king of Judah for decades, but now he'd been captured, taken into custody in a cold, damp, dark, musty prison. And oh, what a blessing it was for him. Because verse 12 describes the scene. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. 
For such a great sinner, it took drastic action for the Lord to get his attention. In verse 10, we see how God was constantly speaking to Manasseh, constantly speaking to his people, but none of them heard. They all refused. Paid no attention to them, but deep in a prison cell in a foreign land (laughs) suddenly gets Manasseh's attention. As the old adage goes, he that cannot pray, let him go to sea, and there he will learn to pray. It's often in a time of greatest need that we're brought to our knees. For Manasseh, the one who refused to pray, the one who refused to seek the Lord, was taken to Assyria to learn how to pray and seek the Lord. I mean, think about it. 9-11 hits, terrorist attacks. What happened across our land? Prayer meetings sprung up all over the place. Why? Because there's distress in our land. School shootings take place. Virginia Tech, NIU. Who knows where the next place is going to be? What's, what happened and what will happen in the future? Prayer vigils will arise up. Why? Because in great distress, people will always seek somehow to pursue after God. And that's what Manasseh did. He was down and he was out. had nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. And to the Lord he turned. And his, his repentance was genuine. Because it says there that he humbled himself greatly. His great sin demanded great repentance. And in his humility, look at what verse 13 says. When he prayed to him, as praying to God, God was moved by his treaty, entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And this was the point of his conversion. This is when he went from B.C. to A.D. It's a changing point in his life. Now, we don't know exactly what Manasseh said. In his prayer, it just says there in verse 13 that he prayed. But look ahead to verse 18 and 19. Look what it says about his prayer. It says, Now, the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. And then verse 19 continues, His prayer also... And how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he built the high place and erected them before the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they're written in the records of the Hosei. This is the Hebrew word for a seer. Right? The, 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 these Hosei is where it was written. Manasseh's prayer was such a great prayer that the Jewish historians recorded it for posterity reasons. Record it in their annuals. Now, unfortunately, we don't have... His prayer. We don't have these records. We don't have these Hosei. We don't have these records of the kings of Israel. Now, there is an ancient document entitled the Prayer of Manasseh, which is included as an appendix to the Apocrypha. So it's like the Apocrypha, some extra-biblical historical works that were written, and um, some like the Catholic Church include them, but this was like an appendix to the Apocrypha, so that's even further out. The Catholic Church doesn't Embrace so some, some churches do. Most churches don't embrace this uh, prayer of Manasseh. We don't know exactly what he said in his prayer, but we can make a pretty good guess to what he prayed. I, simp- I believe he confessed his sin and cried to help. He said, God, I'm, I, I'm here in great distress. I'm a sinner and I need help. I've done mighty terrible things in your sight. I know I have no right to seek forgiveness. I need your grace. Help me lest I die. And I think in many ways, it's the prayer all of us need to pray, right? God, I've messed it. I've I've blown it. I'm guilty before you. 
Oh, I might look religious on the outside, but there are sins inside. God, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Christ, help me. Forgive me. That's the sinner's prayer. Ain't this many words? It's where we all need to pray. You know, I've often thought about writing a book called The Prayer of Manasseh. It wouldn't be a, a long book. In fact, it might be pretty short and maybe attractive looking. Prayer of Manasseh. And um, maybe I'd make it so it's easy and uh, attractive. And, and maybe in this, this book that I'd write someday, I'd promise if you pray this prayer, you will have unbelievable blessings upon your life. This prayer of Manasseh. And um, maybe it would be on the number one top sellers list. And maybe all the royalties could be given to missions. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Well, you pray for me. In this book, I wouldn't talk about some formula of prayer with some exact words to to say over and over and over again. Rather, I'd talk about the concepts of humility and grace and mercy and forgiveness of the cross. I talk about how these things, you know what, they can fill our prayers every day. Lord, as I face this day, I'm not worthy on my own. Even a devotional quiet time I have, it's not meritorious before You, Lord. I come humbly. I seek Your strength. I seek Your help. I thank You for forgiveness in Christ. May I live this day boasting only in the cross. Help me, Lord, in this. That's like a prayer you can pray every day and God will give you unbelievable blessings upon your life for it. In that book, I know I can make such a promise for such a prayer, the prayer of Manasseh, because God is always moved by the response of a humble sinner when he cries out to the Lord in genuine repentance. Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the place you can um, build for me? He says, I look for the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God says His gaze is upon us with favor upon those who are humble, contrite of spirit, and tremble at the Word. And that was Manasseh's prayer. It was a humble, contrite of spirit prayer. It's a prayer of how people come to know the Lord, crying out to the Lord. And when Manasseh prayed, he came to the Lord. He was converted. And it's amazing how God answered his prayer and responded to his prayer. He returned him to Jerusalem. When kings were captured in the ancient world, they weren't returned to power. They were killed. You say, why wasn't Manasseh killed? Because Manasseh's fate wasn't in the hands of the Assyrians. Manasseh's fate was in the hand of God. I mentioned this earlier, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, when Sennacherib came up against Israel, and... uh, Hezekiah spoke. He said in chapter 32, verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. I'm sorry, to help us and to fight our battles. God's going to help us and God's going to fight our battles for us. We don't have to fear Sennacherib. Because we're in the hands of God. He's got an arm of flesh. And so likewise, even Hezekiah, deep in a prison cell in Babylon, the Lord was his help. He was in the hands of the Lord. There is no other way that you can ever explain how it is that Manasseh was restored. We captured Saddam Hussein. 
Can you imagine and fathom Saddam Hussein being restored to sovereignty in Iraq? Well, Manasseh is Saddam Hussein who was restored back to power. It makes no sense, but it's only the sovereign pleasure of God that accomplished these things. Well, I'd love to read for you the, uh, the text of the ancient document entitled The Prayer of Manasseh. It's not so long. I'm going to pass it for the sake of time though. But just a great prayer of repentance. A great model prayer. You can see that in the notes that I pass out. But it's a great way of, of Manasseh just seeking the Lord. It's real flowery. You know, obviously, I don't think it was, was Manasseh. Real flowery. Talking about God and His grandeur and His grace. Manasseh and his sin. His repentance. But we see how authentic his repentance was here in verses 14 to 16. And after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David in the west side of Gahan in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. And he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods from and the idol from the house of the Lord, which he put in in verse 7, as well as the altars which he had built on the mountain in the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. See verses 3 and 4. And threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. He ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. He fortified the city, fortified the army, reinstituted temple worship, and every evil that Manasseh had, had done, he undid all the... That's repentance. Changing your way. Changing your life. And one time you're seeking your sin your own way. You, you repent. You say, I believe. I trust in Christ and I follow after this way. And that's exactly what Manasseh did. Everything that he did... He turned and repented of that. And I think God in His sovereignty brought him back into Israel so we could see the authentic nature of his repentance. He just wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for God and His glory. And like the Thessalonians, he turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And as the sovereign king, I love this, he pressed all the people to serve and worship the Lord. He set up these places and said, we're going to worship and honor the King of Heaven he said, right? He ordered Judah, verse 16, to serve the Lord God of Israel. You know, it's a little bit like what took place in the days of Constantine. The, the, the Roman Empire was spread vast across the world, and though they had persecuted Christians for 300 years, countlessly putting many, many of them to death, and just after even the greatest persecution of them all, the persecution of Diocletian, it ended in 313 or 311 with the Edict of Toleration. Soon after, Constantine declared that the whole Roman Empire is now Christian. The Christians have conquered, not through Lord, swords loud clashing, but with deeds of love and mercy and with enduring persecution, enduring troubles. The church conquered. Constantine declared it to be the Holy Roman Empire, the Christian Empire. And we think, hey, that's great. But what happened? The hearts of the people weren't changed. They brought their pagan practices under the guise of Christianity is all they did. The hearts of those in the Holy Roman Empire weren't changed. And that's exactly what happened with Manasseh. Though he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel, verse 17 tells us that nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. They continued in their idolatrous ways. Only they changed the name of the God they worshipped. They worship Jehovah now. They don't worship Baal or the Asherim. They changed the name, didn't change the practice. You know, sadly, that's the case of many in our land today. They have a name on the outside. They're Christian. 
But they've not been converted in their hearts. They attend church. They sing praise to Jesus. But in the end, there's no change of heart. But a change of heart's what's needed. Manasseh had a change of heart. He ordered everyone to worship the Lord externally, but they had no change of heart. When the heart of the palace was changed, the heart of the people was unchanged. And it continued on. If you look at verse 20, Manasseh slept with his fathers, and so they buried him in his own house. Ammon, his son, became king in his place. And Ammon undid everything that Manasseh undid after he had done, if it makes sense. Ammon was 22 years old and he, when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. And Ammon sacrificed all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. But Ammon multiplied guilt. He became king, did evil, didn't humble himself. And I just ask you this morning, is your heart changed? Has your heart been humbled? Have you pleaded before the Lord? Manasseh should give you great encouragement. I know the hymn writer speaks about the, uh, the thief on the cross and says, um, I'm trying to remember how it starts, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in the day. And there my eye, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And you say the same thing about Manasseh. There my eye, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. There's hope for every single one of us here in this room this morning. John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" I ask you, is that grace precious to you? This morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. And we celebrate the Supper because His grace is precious to us. The Lord's Supper is for those who have embraced Christ, who know of this B.C. life and this A.D. life. And are loving Him and serving Him, are walking rightly with Him. And so if that's where you are, if you can... If you can Resonate in your heart with Manasseh says, I, I know my sin, but I, I know my righteousness in Christ. And celebrate the supper, the supper with us. But that's not you. Just let the cup, let the, let the bread pass. It's a celebration for those of us who believe, those of us who are walking rightly. If there's some sin in your life you're continuing to hold on to, you know, you're not right with the Lord, just let it pass. It's a time, as 1 Corinthians says, that we need to examine ourselves, lest we judge the body rightly and fall under judgment. It's a time of great rejoicing. It's a time of solemn looking and remembering the cross as well. So let me pray before we transition there. Lord, my aim this morning was threefold. To uh, encourage our hearts in the testimony of of a saint who was a great sinner. To encourage our heart with an unshackled-like testimony. And I pray that would be accomplished. As people go from here, they think, wow, I'm really encouraged by the way that you work in the lives of people. My aim this morning was to stir the heart of those who are unbelievers in our midst. Oh, they may look good on the outside, but they know there's much rebellion going on on the inside. I pray you'd, you'd stir in their heart. 
you convict of sin, you'd show the glories of the Savior where only true happiness is found. My aim thirdfold was to encourage us in evangelism. Give us a holy boldness to speak with others. May we identify those who are maybe our manasses in this life. May we not be discouraged that they're without hope because there is hope. If Manasseh was converted, so can someone in our culture and our society be converted. So give us the boldness. May we pray to you for boldness to speak with them of Christ, to invite them to church, to invite them to some Christian function. So help us in these things, Lord. And I, I would pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may it, may it be a time of rejoicing for us, may it be a time of remembrance, may it be a time of um, joy, reflection upon all that Christ Jesus has done for us. In Him is no condemnation. In Him we stand complete before the throne. In Him all our transgressions are forgiven. In Him grace comes in more than abundant ways. In Him we can have everything beyond even what we ask or think we can have in Christ. Lord, someday we will spend eternity with Him, seeing Him, worshiping Him, rejoicing forever, and that won't be a dull day. Be a day where we constantly worship and think about the slaughtered lamb who was slaughtered for our sins. So I pray you'd come and meet with us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.